I often joke that uh, I sell tomatoes on the side of the road because that is the bulk of what we do at Me and McGee Market. It's sell produce. But I have invited Dr. Anthony Chafee onto the podcast, and he's known as the Plant Free MD, a neurosurgeon resident, doctor with a, a really, really strong push for carnivore. Welcome to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast with host Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a Blue Zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies. Dr. Anthony Chafee, I'm so excited to uh, be visiting with you, my friend. Um, so for just kind of get kick it off, you are a neurosurgeon, American neurosurgeon in Australia that is a proponent of the carnivore diet. That seems like a lot of things going on right there. <laughs> well, well, first of all, neurosurgical resident, so I haven't finished up yet. But yeah, so I, um, I've had an interest in diet and nutrition and how that affects health and disease, but also athletic performance. And that's how I originally got interested in it. You know, I was an athlete growing up and uh, I was an All-American rugby player and then went on and played sort of at the top levels in the U.S. and Canada and then over in England as well. And so nutrition was always important to me. I wanted to be my best. And so also I was pre-med, so I was looking at biology classes, botany classes, nutrition classes. It all fit together. And so I, yeah, I just I sort of came across some information in my undergraduate degree that made me think a bit differently. I was taking botany, I was taking biology, I was learning plants have toxins, they don't want you to eat them, they're living organisms, they like staying living organisms, and so they defend themselves like anything else. Uh, I took cancer biology, we learned that there were dozens, if not over a hundred carcinogens in normal produce, vegetables, and fruit that we eat on a daily basis, and they're actually quite abundant as well. My cancer biology professor even professed that he did not eat salads, he did not eat vegetables, he wouldn't let his kids eat vegetables because in his words, plants are trying to kill you. So don't eat them, we're not designed to eat them. And that made sense because our ancestors have been eating meat since the dawn of man. And uh, during the ice ages, there really isn't anything else to eat except meat. So we're adapted to meat, we're designed to eat meat. And whatever you're designed to eat, whatever you're adapted to eat, that's what's optimal for you to eat. And so it all made sense. And so just going on that premise and uh, understanding just how toxic even normal vegetables were, I just said, right, I'm not eating these things and I'm not putting them in my body. And I felt absolutely amazing for doing that. And I only ate meat just like our ancestors would have. And I felt absolutely incredible because of it. After that, I just started digging into the research, digging into literature, trying to figure out what we could prove, what we knew, and and what uh, you know what we had spelled out, and what we else we needed to to figure out. But there's actually an abundance of information out there that supports this. 
There, there really is. And so where I'm coming from, I'm kind of caught in this weird situation. Like, you know, where I am have been a proponent of meat-based. Uh, but I started out, after my son was diagnosed with cancer, reading everything mm-hmm. I could. And the very first thing that I got a hold of was the China study, right? And so that completely mm-hmm. terrified me of meat. Uh, we cut it out. I just kept diving in. But pretty soon after... I got a hold of Stephen Gundry's The Plant Paradox, and that is when I started questioning about everything. So we, I'm sitting there, my son's five, stage four, Wilms tumor, so kidney, and we're terrified, right? Like looking for whatever we possibly can. And so as I kept progressing in there, went from China study to plant paradox to Terry Walls' work where she started incorporating organ meats, and, th- and that's where that shift Came So it's been a long, long drawn out process for me to even experiment with uh, carnivore. When you were talking about the undergraduate with the cancer biology and plant toxins, uh, that's that's a hard one for me, too, based off of I have a farmer's market to where I sell produce for the vast majority of my living. Right. And so but I still want to be open and objective and I want to to dive into what works and what we need to be concerned on. So can can you go back to, to that a little bit on like plants are having things in them that we shouldn't eat is let's, can we dive into that? Sure. So it, it, it again, comes back to, to biology. Things want to live. Everything's trying to eat each other. Uh, plants and animals, they're all trying to, to live and at the expense of others if necessary. And, for animals, it has to be at the expense of something else. We're heterotrophs. All animals are heterotrophs, meaning that we have to eat something. Something has to die for us to live, be that plants or animals, fungus, algae, something like that. Something has to go. And so everything has a defense as well because it's kill or be killed. It's very wild out in nature. And so if you don't have a defense, you're dead. Nothing has made it through to this point without being able to defend itself. Otherwise, it would go extinct. 97% of of species are are extinct. And that's because they weren't able to adapt and survive and and meet the demands of their environment or of their predators or, or competition. Plants are no different. While animals can run away or fight back, plants can't. And so they have to use other means of defenses. They have a lot of defenses. There are a lot of very interesting things that they do. Um, you know, they can grow little buds on their leaves that look like caterpillar eggs. And so butterfly goes like, oh, that one already has eggs. I'll go lay my eggs on something else. So pretty clever. Uh, they also make latex, which is a chemical used for, for gloves, sort of really sort of rubbery sort of thing. But the plant uses it as a defense. So when an animal starts chewing that that leaf, it starts secreting this thick, tacky sap latex, and it actually physically glues the mouth of the animal shut. And so now that animal can't eat that plant anymore. So it's pretty elegant. The animal now can't open its mouth anymore, so it can't chew that plant anymore, saves the plant. Problem for the animal is, is it usually dies after that because it can't get its mouth unglued. So the plant is more than happy to defend its life with your life. And that's just one example of many, many, many. So plants are really the great chemists of the world. They make about one million different chemicals, most of which are defensive and orient. And so they can make 
latex, which just sort of physically stops you. They can make thorns or hairs or different sorts of things. They can make poisons. They can have nettles that have little stinging poisons, you know, poison ivy, poison oak, those sorts of things. And or they can be physically poisonous. So there, there are a number of different classifications of these toxins that they make. So there are cyanogenic glycosides, so they make cyanide. Now, cyanide is poisonous to all living things. So they can't keep it in, in that form. So we keep it in two different forms. And then when you start chewing it and crushing it, so it's mastication, so when animals chewing it, it releases those two chemicals. They join to make hydrogen cyanide. And that is sort of like a, a, a kill switch. You know, you have like a bomb's like, okay, you kill me, I'm going to drop this and it's going to get all of us, right? So that's what the plant's doing. And so you start biting that, it releases cyanide. And so you get hit and that tissue gets hit as well. So 2,500 different plants that we know of use hydrogen cyanide. There are things called oxalates, which form into oxalic acid, which people know if they've had rust on their house or somewhere they can use, make oxalic acid diluted in water. They spray it or scrub it and it just, just strips the iron um, and rust off of their house. Well, that does that in your body as well. And it strips different minerals like iron, like calcium and others from your body, from your blood, makes oxalate crystals in your tissue can damage multiple organs. Uh, in fact, there, you know, people don't know about gout, but gout isn't just from uric acid. Uh, it used to be classified as five different causes of gout. One of those was oxalates. Now they sort of say like pseudo gout. It's like gout is true gout is oxalate or uric acid crystals and then pseudo gout. So, you know, they play around with these things, but as, as recently as 2000, People were talking about, actually, there are five causes of gout, and one of them were oxalates. So that is that can cause a lot of problems. Ox oxalate poisoning can cause a lot of problems. There is a lot of oxalates, in, or there are a lot of oxalates in spinach and other sorts of leafy greens. Uh, Liam Hemsworth, the actor, he actually went to the hospital with acute oxalate poisoning because he was drinking green spinach smoothies every morning for three weeks. And he had been on a plant-based diet for a while. So this had been building up for a while. And so he put himself in the hospital and had massive kidney stones, had to get those surgically removed. Uh, and people, there's actually reports in the literature, uh, case reports of people having a big dose of oxalates and dying. They actually died from acute oxalate poisoning. There, um, and, and they can make kidney stones as well. So around 75% of kidney stones are calcium oxalate stones. So the oxalates find the calcium in your blood, strip it out. And this can actually cause deficiency because your body has to then strip calcium out of your bones in order to keep your serum calcium up or else your heart will stop because calcium is very important. And so that can cause problems as well. There's a lot of calcium in spinach but because there's so many oxalates, it's not actually bioavailable. There was a study, I believe in the 50s, where they gave people a lot of spinach to see if that would raise their calcium because there, there was, they could see that there was a lot of calcium in it. But this goes down to bioavailability. That's another way that plants defend themselves is they bind up nutrients in ways that we can't access them. And that's a defense because now it's not as profitable for us to eat that plant. So we won't do it or we won't thrive if we do it. And so in this study, they found that even though they gave people calcium-rich uh, spinach, their calcium levels actually dropped because they had so much calcium, it was actually bound up. They couldn't actually get the calcium in the spinach and actually stripped out more of the, the calcium out of people's 
out of people's bodies. Then there's stuff called lectins, which are a huge class of chemicals. And there, there are a lot of these things. Uh, animals make them as well, but they don't seem to cause us any harm. The ones in plants are very, very toxic. So you may, maybe you've heard of a, of a poison that sometimes people use called ricin. Have you heard of that? Yep. Yeah. So ricin is a lectin. And that's in the castor beans. That's sort of in the, in the shell around a castor bean. What is a bean? What is a legume? What is a seed? What is a nut? What is a grain? That's a plant's baby, right? So that's going to make a yeah. new plant. So it's growing that seed in order to make a new plant. So all living things tend to protect their babies more than anything. And plants are no different. So seeds, grains, legumes, nuts, all that, all, all that sort of thing, that tends to be where you'll find the highest concentration of these poisons. So in castor beans, they have a little, little casing around the castor bean, and that has that's packed with ricin. And that is the single most toxic substance we know of on Earth. One microgram per kilogram of body weight will kill anyone. And, um, and most animals, too. I don't know of any animals that are actually adapted to ricin, but it will kill most animals, if not um, all of them. And there are other lectins that, like gluten, wheat germ gluten in that can bind in our gut and rip up our gut lining at a, at a microscopic level, at a molecular level, and actually cause what's called leaky gut. So it causes gaps in the, in the tight junctions between the cells. And so instead of having barrier protection, all of a sudden it's flapping loose and things can sort of get in your, your stream, just like having a little cuts on your skin. Things can get in. Bacteria can get in. Lectins can get in. Other toxins can get in. And your body looks at these and, well, these are foreign. We don't like these. We don't want these. And so they make antibodies towards them. And because they make antibodies towards them, if people are genetically susceptible, you can get actually cross reactions called molecular mimicry. And those antibodies can be close enough to something on our cells that all of a sudden your body starts attacking them. And that seems well, that's a suggested cause of autoimmunity. So like Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, um, uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, Graves disease, uh, all these different sorts of things that seems to be from exposure to lectins and other plant toxins that get in our body through these little gaps. Uh, and there, there are many, many more. Furanocoumarins, all citrus have furanocoumarins parsnips, celery, and these are light sensitive. So UV light will react with them and they'll bind to proteins and DNA irreversibly and cause damage. And so there are actual case studies. And this is something that's, that's actually known about in dermatology, but not everybody studies dermatology. And so they don't know about it, but it's called celery dermatitis. You eat a lot of celery, you pick a lot of celery, you handle celery, you get that sap on your hands and people burn like crazy. And so they have to have a lot of protective gears, uh, gloves, and uh, long sleeve shirts because if they get that sap on their skin in the sun, they'll get bad chemical burns. Um, the broad name for it is phytophotodermatitis. So phyto from plants, photo from light, dermatitis damage to your skin. And so you can actually look in the literature and find cases and examples of people getting second degree burns from squeezing limes in the sun. And I've seen pictures of this with these kids with these just massive chemical burns down their arms, but it happens to adults too. It's not just kids are susceptible to this. And uh, one little girl, I saw a case report of her and, um, and that was actually reported in the, in the newspaper where she was just sort of teething. So the mom gave her some 
a piece of celery to sort of like gnaw on just so she could help get her teeth out. And so just these little juices from the celery was just sort of going on her face and they're just sitting out in the sun. It wasn't like a particularly hot day or anything. And this poor little girl had these massive burns all over her face. It was really, really sad. And so that's, that's a, you know, uh, another way that these things defend themselves. You know, you see animals, normally doesn't happen to wild animals, but animals that are in, uh, you know, a pasture or something like that, if they run out of their forage or feed, they'll start eating other plants that they normally wouldn't, and they can get really bad reactions. And some of these are these photosensitive reactions. So you see these animals, they'll have just horrible blisters and burns all over their face, any sort of exposed skin that doesn't have hair and fur all over it. Um, and actually, there are a lot of uh, illnesses in livestock where if they eat the wrong sort of plant, they'll get very, very sick. So big head, lip, neck, crazy cow syndrome, big tongue. Uh, these are all names for syndromes that actually are from eating plants that they're not evolved and biologically designed to eat. And so they have toxins in them that they can't handle. Actually, big head is from oxalates, from oxalate poisoning in cows. And it actually strips the calcium out of their skull and their bones. And then your body tries to, to rebuild the bones, but it actually does it in a sort of a sloppy way. And it sort of gets big, lumpy, sort of big head. And that's actually from oxalates. So we know about these things in animal husbandry. And then we just think, can't happen to us. No, we're perfect. And so, uh, but of course it does and it can. And so we're actually getting sick and we're getting diseases that aren't actually diseases. They're actually poisons. We're getting poisoned, um, low grade, long-term, over and over, day after day, and it builds up. And just like if you smoke two cigarettes, it's not gonna kill you. But if you smoke a pack of cigarettes a day for 30 years, it's probably gonna do some damage. And, but there are people that smoke their entire lives and never get cancer. Uh, they'll probably get emphysema, probably get heart disease. But my, my grandmother smoked from when she was 13 to 76, and she ended up living to 93, and she had emphysema quite badly. But, you know, she didn't get all the other sort of things, and, and she lived a very long time. So it's, it's, not, it's not that uh, something doesn't have to be able to kill you that day to be poisonous. I don't think anybody's denying that cigarettes are bad for you and that they're poisonous. And certainly all the chemicals that they put in the formaldehyde and things like that that they use to, to cure tobacco is definitely poisonous. And yet it doesn't kill you that day. Well, can't be poisoned then. Oh, I ate a salad the other day. I didn't die. Therefore, it's not poison. Yeah, it's long term. It builds up just like alcohol is poison. But it doesn't kill you in a day. It doesn't make you very sick in a day. It doesn't give you diabetes in a day. It takes years, it takes decades, but it does. It gives you fatty liver disease, it gives you diabetes, and it can predispose you to many, a host of other metabolic issues. Well, so can eating things with these other toxins, these other low-grade poisons that cause low-grade harm to us, but it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. And I think that's what we're seeing. I think that's why we've seen this massive uptick in the so-called chronic diseases that were very, very rare before the 1980s, and now they're just getting going higher and higher and higher in prevalence every decade. I think I just saw a statistic today where it said that um, now uh, the autism rate in kids or in, in 2018 or something like that was like one in 25. It's quite common. And sort of 10 years or so before that, it was one in 44. 
And then in 1995, it was one in 500. So what the hell is going on there? You know, why is that happening? Well, we just weren't diagnosing it as well. Okay, well, show me all the 70-year-old people with autism then. You know, if we weren't seeing this, if we just weren't diagnosing this, well, where were all the other people that have had this and have grown older now? They don't exist. So this is new. And, you know, if we, if we hadn't been able to diagnose it in the past, we absolutely were paying attention by the 1990s. And every single decade after that, this has gotten more and more and more prevalent. So is heart disease. So is cancer. So as um, uh, diabetes, so as autoimmune issues. I mean, you, you're telling me that no one's going to notice when someone has Crohn's disease and has bloody diarrhea 30 times a day. Uh, I probably just didn't, didn't, you know, just didn't see that, you know, back in 1976. Well, of course they did. You know, it just didn't exist in the numbers that they that they have now. And I'm not the first person who said this. In 1975, there's a Dr. Volklin who wrote a book called The Stone Age Diet. He said, hey, look, we're carnivores. We're apex predators. Apex predators are by definition carnivores. And this is all the evidence to show that we're apex predators. And he, uh, I believe he was a gastroenterologist, and he just basically argued, if you stop eating plants, my profession doesn't need to exist. These things go away. These problems go away. And so these problems are a product of the food that we're eating. Um, more people wrote this. You'll go back. There's a Harvard professor, Stefanson, um, uh, Wilhelmer Stefanson, who lived with the Inuit uh, for 12 years, learned their language, was a polar explorer and ethnologist, and wrote a book called The Fat of the Land. And he found that, hey, they're just eating meat, and they're as healthy as hell. They're not getting the diseases of the West that we're getting in civilization. And he wrote a book that was called Cancer is a Disease of Civilization. They just don't get it in these primitive populations when they're only eating what we are designed to eat, what we're normally uh, adapted to eat. Before that, in the 1800s, there's Dr. J.H. Salisbury wrote a book called uh, The Relationship of Alimentation and Disease, he did a 30-year research project into, into the, uh, the optimal diet for human beings, lived with the Plains Indians that were just eating bison, they weren't getting sick, they were living to be 120, 130 years old. People say, like, well, they were just saying that. Well, we know as geneticists now that your design based on your chromosomes, based on your genes, we are designed to live 120 years on average. Meaning that if you just stay out of your own way, you don't mess up, you should make it to 120 without doing anything special. So why are we dying in our 70s, 80s, 90s? My, mom, my grandmother died at 93. She died 30 years young, right? Well, she smoked a lot, but she ate a lot of bacon. She ate eggs every day, right? And so you know, that at least helped. But he wrote this book and he said, and it's called the relationship of relation of alimentation and disease. So alimentation is digestion. So the relationship between the food that we eat and the diseases that we get. And he showed that you could that the people that were eating plants this was long before processed foods, you know, sugars and 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 seed oils and all that sort of stuff was prevalent. So this was just people eating a lot more grains and things like that. Ancient Egypt, the uh, Everest papyrus, they knew what uh, angina was. They knew what heart attacks were. They knew what heart disease was. They were eating a lot of grains. And, and Salisbury saw this as well. And he showed that you can reverse things like rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's, gout, uh, you know, uh, Lyme disease, chronic Lyme disease, and even even help people get over tuberculosis in the 1800s, hundred years before we had antibiotics or any useful medications to any of these to any of these illnesses. And he showed that you can reverse these things, or at least put them into remission, 
by putting them on a pure red meat and water diet. It was called the first fad diet. It was referred to historically as the first fad diet, but that was it. He had people on, a, on a, just a red meat and water diet, and people took off with it. People became much, much more healthy. And this, this carried for a long time, and now we've had processed food companies and the vegan push and the vegetarian push started in the 1800s and went on from there. It was they, like the Seventh-day Adventists, who pushed the, the, a vegetarian diet because they said meat was evil because it causes lustful feelings. And, uh, and then you shouldn't, you shouldn't eat it because of that, because lust is a sin. And so they pushed that. And Dr. Kellogg, Harvey Kellogg, was a Seventh-day Adventist. He started Kellogg Cereals. About 36 other cereal companies started up around him. And that was the, the induction of processed food. And so they've been pushing that sort of plant-based narrative. And they've actually been funding all the research and nutritional studies. They've been peopling and populating the guidelines, you know, the boards that, that, that decide all the guidelines. They're on the WHO. They have all these people placed, and, and they're pushing this sort of ideology. Um, but the simple fact remains, plants have toxins that we're not designed to weather, and we can get hurt from, be it short-term or long-term. If you get lost in the woods and you run out of food, obviously you can't eat any random plant, right? Most of them will make you very sick, because out of the 340,000 plants in the world, less than 1% are edible, meaning that the rest will kill you right? Because they're toxic. So the ones that we eat that are edible, that doesn't mean that they are devoid of poison because they'll kill other animals. This is why you know, we have dogs and cats. We're like, okay, you can't let a cat eat avocado. That's poison to a cat, right? You can't let you know, dogs eat chocolate. That's poison to a dog. So there are these poisons in plants that we can do something with, but that doesn't mean that they're perfectly safe for us. And that's something that we need to recognize. And so when you have these, uh, these vegan proponents, plant-based proponents saying that we actually should eat things that we haven't been eating until very recently, that maybe didn't even exist a century ago, like seed oils, that makes absolutely no sense. There's an immutable law of biology, which is that of adaptation. If you are exposed to something, you're exposed to a stressor, you will adapt to it or you'll die. If it's, a, if it's a big enough stressor. So what you've been eating for millions of years, you are, by definition, adapted to it. That's going to be very good for you, right? It's just like koalas are adapted to eucalyptus, cows are adapted to grass, pandas are adapted to bamboo. We're adapted to meat because we've been eating that for millions of years. Some people have had exposure to agriculture about eight to 10,000 years ago. There's actually a clear distinction in the fossil record. People got shorter, Smaller brains, smaller jaws, crooked teeth, shorter legs, signs of poor wound healing, signs of uh, infection and things like that. We got very sick directly after agriculture. But the people that survived had different adaptations. So the, the children of that, you know, European, people of European descent and others who had agriculture early on, we're descended from people that had adaptations. And so we have some adaptations, some protections to some of these plants, but not all plants, just certain plants. And we're eating a lot of plants that didn't even exist 10,000 years ago because we've made them through hybridization. Um, but that doesn't help any of the other people that didn't have agriculture until you know, the, the European powers uh, came and visited them, like the Native Australians, like the Native Americans, who are four times as likely you get obesity, heart disease, liver disease, diabetes, cancer, 
and all the rest when eating a Western diet, but only when eating a Western diet. So what does that mean? That means the food is causing the disease because if they don't eat the food, they don't get the disease. And people from the West, we get the disease. We just get it at a lower rate, right? So Native Americans, Native Australians, they were hunters. They ate meat and they did not get the so-called diseases of the West. And that's what they were called. There's like, wow, these guys aren't getting the same diseases that we get in, in England and Spain and so on. And so, okay, fine. When they started being incorporated into Western society and started eating the food of the West, that's when they started getting the diseases of the West. It's very just a pinpoint right there. That's when it happened. You can see this in the Inuit. Over the course of the 20th century, early 20th century, no cancer. And then it's like 20 years, like, okay, bit of cancer. Another 20 years, okay, a little more cancer, a little more cancer, a little more cancer. As they're being more involved in Western society and eating more Western food. And now they're more susceptible to it. Uh, heart disease, same thing. As, as far as um, the 1990s, there's very little heart disease in the Inuit, even though that on average they smoked, started smoking from eight years old, right? That's a, that's a, that's a heart disease risk. And, uh, and they ate a whole bunch of blubber and saturated fat. My God, that's the cause of heart disease, according to some people, right? And yet they weren't getting it as much as the rest of Canadians, even though they, were, they weren't just looking at, at the Inuit who only ate meat. They were looking at them as a people. So some were in the cities, some were eating Western food, drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, and the rest. And yet they, as a whole, they weren't getting as much uh, heart disease. And they said, okay, well, in particular, say they say, okay, well, maybe they're just genetically uh, protected from heart disease because they've just been eating fatty meat all the time, so they're perfectly adapted to that. And they found that actually, no, they have all the genetic risk, risk factors for heart disease. They have none of the protections. So actually, they are more predisposed to getting heart disease, not less. So obviously, and they, and they didn't know what to conclude. They were just like, okay, we don't know what's going on here. So obviously, you know, these genetic factors aren't really all they're cracked up to be, or maybe there's something else going on because we have no idea because these guys are super high risk. Well, it's because saturated fat, animal fat is not a risk. It's actually protection. It's actually good for you. Smoking is not. That's not a good, that's not, that's not a good factor. I think Dr. Chafee shows how passionate he is and how well versed in the literature and his experience. And uh, I think it's uh, really, really interesting to question what we believe on plant-based being the end-all be-all whereas you know when we really dive into it and see those results maybe maybe there's more to it i know the plant paradox really opened my eyes so i hope this gives you an idea of uh, things to consider at least before we go into the part two of uh, more of carnivore the why behind carnivore and how to do that Again, if it's something you're interested in. Thank you for listening to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast. We hope that you have learned something new and that you are inspired to adopt regenerative practices in your community. Remember that by working together, we can create a sustainable and abundant future for ourselves and for future generations.